authors, editors, publishers, book cover designers, agents, critics, readers. A whole lot of professionals come together for a book. We are going to explore the world of books in our unique podcast show called Book Lounge. Book Lounge is brought to you by iCafe Podcasts, born with a collaboration between Tell Me Your Story and Zero Hour Entertainment. I am your host, Koral Dasgupta, all set to ask some interesting, straightforward and fun questions to our guests. Today, I'm talking to Tom Lutz. He is an author. He's a distinguished professor of creative writing at the UC Riverside, the founding editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. So, as you understand that Tom comes in with a lot behind him and we are about to talk about all of those exploring how an author, a book critic and a professor takes himself ahead. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Totally my pleasure. So, Tom, of course, uh, I being an author and uh, a book lover, Los Angeles Review of Books is something that has always been my uh, center of attention and I have been extremely attracted to the work that you had been doing. So, when you started LARB, what was your broad vision? If you could tell us the beginning and growth story of this uh, not-for-profit venture. Yeah, I'm glad to. You know, I should start, though, by saying that um, my academic career... I started as a literary historian, uh, an American literary historian. So I've been interested in what um, we call the literary ecology, kind of sociology of literature for a long time. And um, so I knew that the book review as an institution came along only, you know, several centuries after the the It comes in the 18th century. Um, it really gets going in the 19th century, because in a society that's divided by, you know, with between a noble class and a peasantry, mm-hmm. uh, there's no need for a book review. Everyone just reads what the king or the queen is reading. Mm-hmm. So it's only the rise of the middle of a middle class, um, and that middle class is unsure of its taste and wants to be up on things but doesn't know what it wants to be up on that book reviews um, become part of the newspaper world the periodical world mm-hmm. so I, I knew that and right in in 2010 um, uh, all of the book reviews and book review sections in American periodicals um, were either closing down altogether or shrinking down to small, small parts of what they used to be. So the mm-hmm. Chicago Tribune, the LA Times, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, Denver, Dallas, Atlanta, Seattle, San Francisco, all mm-hmm. of those killed their, their book reviews. They just stopped, ha- you know, they maybe had a book review once in a while in the daily paper. They no longer had a, a book review supplement. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was bad for the future of literature and for reading, and I decided that I needed to, and grandiose, but I decided I needed to create a book review for the future. So we launched yeah. in, in 2011. Okay, okay, got it. So, uh, uh, Tom, these days a lot of people review a lot of books, and something that I very specifically would like to ask you is what are things that you feel must be included in a book review? I mean, it's not obviously just the goods and bads of the story. It's not just about the storyline, whether it makes sense or it doesn't, it drips apart. There must be a lot more to it. 
there must be a lot of uh, academic and literary portions that must be punched in. So that is something I really wanted to know your inputs on a perfect, proper, trimmed book review. <laughs> yes, well, that is a trickier question than it sounds like, I think. <laughs> no, no, it's not meant to be tricky. We are just trying to, you know, give the skill idea to our audience. Yeah, it's um, there are so many different kinds of book reviews. Um, there are straight up and down, um, you know, 300 word um, rec reading recommendations. Mm -hmm. This is a great, you know, the, the best new novel I've read in, in years. You should read it. It's about a woman who uh, breaks up with her husband and lives happily ever after with a new guy. And that's the that's the that's the review. And it's beautifully written and, you know, buy it tomorrow. So there's a, a kind of book recommendation that's very brief. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is that's that's one of the functions that a book review has. It's a kind of mm -hmm. buying guide, a shopper's guide. Um, and then there are longer reviews and those longer reviews can take lots of different forms. Again, some are straight ahead reviews. The, the you know, average newspaper book review in America is 800 words or so. Mm -hmm. uh, in a, on, on a, in a kind of major review, it'll be 1200 words. Mm -hmm. And those tend to, uh, have a little introductory gambit, which sets a stage for the way the author's going to talk about the book. It then moves into a, uh, a description of the contents and the genre and the, and the, and similar books and, and that kind of thing. It then spends a little time really, um, working through what's important about the book. And that's actually got something to do with its themes and it's, and it's, uh, it's arguments or it's, um, or it's um, kind of uh, intricacies. And, uh, and there might be a little nod um, about four-fifths of the way down to something that's not quite right about it from the critic's perspective. Something that is, um, you know, uh, I wished that the author had spent a little bit more time with such and such a character because uh, it seems to me that character uh, has a perspective that nobody else in the book has and would deepen everything. Right. So it's a it's a it's a short paragraph of what's problem problematic about the book and then back to a kind of summary um, and you're out. So that's a, a, a fairly standard kind of review. And then the, then there are more complicated review essays where the essay is about X and the book functions as an example of X. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine that. Um, uh, that it's about addiction memoirs. And so th this person has an argument that they want to make about addiction memoirs. And that argument is that there's too much of X in the addiction memoir and not enough of Y. And that's the problem with the addiction memoir. For instance, look at this book, and then it does a kind of mini review of that book, and then it gets back to its own argument. It may bring another addiction memoir in. Talk about that as well. Uh, some review essays go through five, six or more books. So there's a, re a review essay where the purpose of the review is more about the, the larger argument than it is about the book itself. Uh, Los Angeles Review Books does a lot of pieces like that. Um, okay. We do a lot of the longer, more intricate reviews. Uh, our average is over 1,500 words. So our, in fact, our shortest um, reviews are around 1,500 words or longer than yeah. the long ones in the newspaper. We 
we like to think of what we're doing as being part of an intellectual conversation mm-hmm. that is that is not just about this particular book, but about that stuff in the culture that this book is important to. Wonderful. Tom, do you remember the first book that you personally reviewed? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I hated that question. Uh, because <laughs> I... Uh, I, I I went and I looked on my own CV because I couldn't quite remember what they were, and uh, I'm I'm a little embarrassed by them now. I was way too hard on the authors in my first few reviews. And <laughs> some of them were in the New York Times, and some were in academic journals. And I was, you know, a young guy trying to make his way in the intellectual world. And I thought one did it the way you did graduate school, which is you went in the seminar room and you argued your point really hard. So I, I, I think that they're not very good reviews. I was not very good at it. And I was not very generous. I think <laughs> most, uh, most of us who are writers, um, every book we write, we become more generous reviewers of the books of others. That is so true. <laughs> that is the reason I actually asked you because I'm sure the first review would have been a little, you must have been a strict professor then. <laughs> Not in literal terms, but in, as a critic. <laughs> Uh, and I had not published my, well, I guess, uh, well, you know, I was just publishing my first book then myself. So. Okay. So how was the book lover or literature lover in you born? Or, I mean, if I may ask, what books did you grow up reading or who was the first storyteller in your life? Yeah, you know, I, it's um, it turns out that I just, um, you know, I'd love to be able to say that my grandfather or my grandmother was a great raconteur and told me stories at bedtime or and that's not true. And my parents were not story. They were kind of immigrants who were pretty closed mouthed and they didn't like TV. So we were, our TV time was very rationed. So the only storytelling we got was from books. Storytelling was the province of books. And so I read a lot. I read early and I read quite a bit um, and a lot of everything. Um, I just wrote an essay about this um, for a book that's edited actually by two Indian academics, um, one Indian American uh, and one uh, Saikat Majumdar, who is at your own Ashoka University. Yes, yes, yes. I know him. And and Arti Vade, who's at Duke University. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did this collection on, uh, it's called The Critic as Amateur. And uh, I wrote about um, uh, reading a book called The Black Stallion. Uh, as I under the covers with a flashlight um, after I was supposed to have the lights out and the kind of getting swept up in that world, uh, that kind of very, very much larger world than my little suburban New Jersey world. Uh, or people went to Arabia. Uh, that's what they call the book, Arabia. And uh, and where and where um, boys got to own horses. So I was I was I was thrilled by it. I read the Hardy Boys. I read uh I read, I got a complete Arthur Conan Doyle as a kid. I read all of that. Um, and um, uh, my mothers took us to the library. And so I'd come home with uh, 10 books um, every uh, week or two and go through them and bring them back. But even before that, I, I was, I, I was, I, I would read my little picture books over and over again. Mm-hmm. Even, even Dick and Jane, I could uh, spin worlds. Um, 
Capital picture books. books, you mean the illustrated books, right? Not comics. Right. right. Or you no, mean il- both? Illustrated books like uh, the Dick and Jane readers right. were where we first learned to read in America. It's a, it's a very, um, you know, see Dick run, see Jane run. But there were pictures that went along with it. And I, I had Dick and Jane doing a lot more than just running in my head. They were playing games and they were, they were, they were doing all sorts of things. So um, I, uh, I, I've, I've been uh, kind of enthralled um, for as, from as early as I can remember. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm sure Tommy would have a lot to say about the role that uh, teachers of literature play in developing one's love for books or literature. Would you like to recall the teachers or professors who may have inspired you? Well, um, yeah, I had one in second grade. I had one in seventh grade. I had several in college, several in graduate school um, that were, you know, that all, all of whom kind of demonstrated to me the you know, not not in, in any particular, just in the way that they talked and lived, the, the power mm-hmm. of the written word, you know, the power of the life of the mind mm-hmm. and the value of a, of a cosmopolitan vista. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be here without all of them. Mm-hmm. The seventh grade teacher, her name is Miss Reese, and I, and I wanted to thank her when I published my first book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if her, her name was spelled R-I-I-S in the Scandinavian way or... R E E S E in the in the in the British way, mm-hmm. uh, and I had no way. I, I tried to find it. <laughs> My old school, nobody could tell could tell me. Anyway, Miss Reese um, gave us a writing assignment in seventh grade, so we could write whatever we wanted. Mm. And I, you know, there were no rules. Um, uh, it could be a paragraph long. It could be a hundred pages long. She didn't care. It could be poetry. It could be prose. It could be whatever. And so I basically reinvented without knowing it the modernist epic poem mm-hmm. uh, had this odd poem in like seven or eight different kinds of very loose reverse forms um, and that all about uh, the girl who had broken my heart mm-hmm. and <laughs> 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 sure it's quite, quite troubling. so I um I, I wrote that and she took me aside after, um, you know, she handed it back and there was an A on it. And she took me aside and she told me that um, I had a gift and that um, of, of expression and that, um, you know, she didn't know where it would lead me and didn't know what, but she, I should just know that um, what I wrote was amazing and that it was really uh, extraordinary and that I had a gift. And I don't, you know, I kind of, Tucked that away. I had never been praised for anything. I was a bit of a bad boy in school, a bit of a, um, you know, I was a space cadet. I would, my mind would wander. I never paid attention. I kind of got A's in half my classes and F's in half of them. I just was, I was either hot or cold and, and usually cold. So I was a terrible student. Um, this was the first time I'd been really praised and it stuck with me. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with me choosing this life. Uh, then we cut forward 30 years and I, it turns out that I'm living um, a number of blocks from my best friend in that seventh grade uh, here in Los Angeles. And we get together and I tell him this story about Miss Reese. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, my God, she told me the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my piece was terrible. Um, <laughs> and apparently... 
this was just a pedagogical technique of hers to get us to just do what we thought was us speaking and then praise us for it and let that have its effect on our lives as we went forward. So I basically chose my career based on a pedagogical technique um, that kind of misfired, but... (laughs) 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 Um, I'm glad it did, but... That is one of the most innovative techniques I've learned right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, as a professor of creative writing today, what are the most basic skills that you look at upgrading within your students, given that, I mean, they come to you as adults, right? They come to you at times when their habits and preferences are already defined. What is the plane that you have to work upon and how do you do it? Well, the, you know, the fundamental problem I see in my students um, at the undergraduate and the graduate level Mm -hmm. is that they simply don't know enough and they don't know enough um, about creative writing, which is what I teach now, Mm -hmm. or literature, which is what I was teaching um, before this. Um, because they haven't read enough. Um, so the main thing I try to do is to get them to read more. I mean, that's the, that there's, there's nothing that could possibly help them more than just going into the woodshed, as we say, and, and, um, chopping a lot of wood, just getting in there and reading and reading and reading. Mm. Um, so that's, that's, that's number one, because I'm now teaching creative writing and a lot of it is workshop based, um, the the basic skills part um, is the the kind of problems people have with basic skills uh, at the at the kind of syntactical grammatical level um, are are very varied. Um, I have students from lots of different backgrounds. Um, you know, uh, University of California Riverside for undergraduates is um, is what we call a majority minority. Um, institution, right? It's uh, 18% white. It's um, largely Hispanic and Asian. And, um, and, uh, and the majority of the students are either immigrants or, you know, born here after the parents just got here, kind of, you know, very recent, recent immigrant families. So they grew up speaking another language. They are, they've got a different background than the students that I taught at the University of Iowa, for instance. And and that means that they have different sets of skills. They have different sets of language skills. Mm -hmm. They are are better at multiple languages than my students at Iowa. (laughs) uh, And therefore, in some fundamental ways, they understand language better than my Iowa students do. Um, But they um, but they have had uh, sometimes um, because Riverside is also a a school that is very um, involved in taking students who uh, need financial aid. Um, in other words, they have, we have a lot of students whose families are, are, are still in poverty, students who are working full time while they go to school in order to help support their families at home. Mm-hmm. And so it's that they, um, they went to, a lot of them went to poor grammar schools, mm-hmm. a lot of or high schools, um, and uh, and they're playing a little bit of catch up. So it's a and um, you know th- that that varies quite a bit. Some some catch up in in the first month. Some catch up in the first 
semester, some catch, catch up in the first year. <laughs> There's a little bit of catch up, right? So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very specific teaching environment. And, um, and that means that uh, luckily, because of creative, the way creative writing works, it's a very indiv- individualized um, course. And they get straight ahead, uh, line by line feedback from me writing on um, everything that they do and they get line by line feedback from the other students in the class too so it's a it's a um it's a place where those kind of working out some of the basic skills issues happens fairly naturally in the in the uh, pedagogical situation um uh the the graduate students are come from come from all over the country um mm-hmm. we have a very kind of uh, well-known creative writing faculty and so we're getting students from from schools at all levels and um and uh they they don't fit that profile at all um uh, uh but again we have a we place a premium on diversity in that program and that means that we have a diversity of preparation and a diversity of diversity um i do think that there's some resistance on the part of some of my students to reading the classics mm-hmm. because um they, they've been kind of taught all along in their earlier education that the dead white males are dead for a good reason and um that they should they should be <laughs> concentrating on um you know the the writers who as uh, as people say are like them mm. that, um, and so there's a there's a resistance to um, to the, to to reading some of the classic literature, which is a shame because a lot of the shorthand in literature as a profession yeah. has to do with what it means when you say uh, this story has a has a Gatsby structure, or this story is a um, is uh, has a has a structure like um, Pride and Prejudice. It do, you know it doesn't matter what what the what it is, but those those touchstones for for people uh, are still the touchstones in publishing and lots of other places. And uh, it's it's important that they kind of get some background on that as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, given that you are an award winning author today, does it help in any way to understand? The character or mind of another author when you are reading their books. Well, uh, yes, I think that um, you know uh, there's a um, there's a famous book uh, of literary criticism from the 1960s, I believe, called the A Rhetoric of Fiction mm. by Wayne Booth, and he talks about the implied author, mm-hmm. and he says that every book. Um, not only tells you, not only gives you a narrator, but gives you uh, a kind of picture of an author behind the curtain pulling the strings, like the Wizard of Oz. That the you 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 get a sense when you're reading the Great Gatsby, for instance, you get a sense not just of Gatsby through through Nick Carraway's eyes. You get a picture not just of Nick Carraway, but you get a, a, a picture of the author behind Nick Carraway, mm-hmm. and there. And he talks about the the multiple ways that authors do that. Make sure you understand that there's some there's a there's a godlike presence um, behind the, the the discourse of the of the book that uh, is pulling the strings. So, and I think that um, all the great authors, uh, it's it's pretty easy to see how how they do that once you spend a little time looking at it. Mm. 
and you don't have to look at it to feel it and to kind of uh, to kind of understand it and assimilate it into your experience of the book. So I think that whether we know we're doing it or not, we do, in fact, mm-hmm. sense of the author. Now, authors can dissimulate and make us think <laughs> someone they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, is it important to know the actual author or the author that is being implied by the book? Mm-hmm. And I think it's much more important to know the implied author of the book than it is to know the author behind the book. The author behind the book, in a sense, um, even though I now hundreds of them are my actual friends and so I care about them, mm-hmm. the other hundreds of thousands of them I, I I don't care about. I do care about how they represent themselves in their books quietly mm-hmm. and secretly in a way. Um, and uh, and that's a an important part of the reading experience. But the actual author, not so much. Fabulous. So, uh, Tom, if I may ask this, I mean, I often find, or at least that's my interpretation, that I find that authoring or reviewing or any kind of writing for that matter, be it fiction or nonfiction or academic, it's a combination of arts and science. Mm. What do you feel about it? Do you feel that it is arts or do you feel it's a combination as well? If you could explain that for our audience. That's uh, that's a, a fascinating question. You know the the um, my graduate work was in literary theory, and mm-hmm. literary theory is an attempt to find the science of mm-hmm. literature. Um, it's uh, it's um, uh, let's just say it's only partially successful as a science at this point. <laughs> but um, you know, physicists will tell you that physics is only partially successful. Mm at this point um they're still figuring a lot of things out and they're still kind of missing pieces of the puzzle um so i think that there's this kind of scientific way to look at at literature and a scientific way to understand literature um and it has to do with primarily with structure and form Mm -hmm. um but structure and form is so uh intricately involved with uh, language that you can hardly talk about one without talking about the other, but the the um, the act of creation mm. is itself an, an artistic act. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, I, I just wrote my first. I just published my first novel. Um, came out a week ago, um, and um, that was a that was a. Um, a wonderful experience. I've always wanted to be a novelist. I've just mm-hmm. been procrastinating while I wrote the other um, half dozen books or so. <laughs> <laughs> and I finally got around to it. And, uh, and it was a pure pleasure to, to work on it. It was just a, a kind of immersive uh, experience um, that I've read many artists and writers talk about. Um, and I've experienced in part writing the other books and moments writing the other books, but, uh, not with the kind of, um, kind of constant, um, kind of immersive quality of writing the novel. Um, obviously once that I've got a draft, a novel, and I've had all of that fun. Um, and it's, it's more like, you know, going to a movie than making a movie, writing a Mm -hmm. novel kind of happens in front of you um, as you're sitting at the computer. Um, and the 
and once I, once you've got a draft, then you have to figure out what what's good in it, what's bad in it. And uh, and then I guess you'd have to say that there's a, a kind of science that enters at that point. Mm-hmm. At different moments, um, it's, you make artistic decisions. Um, and that make that brings up, I think, the most interesting crux for this question is an artistic decision, a scientific act or or a creative act and i guess it's where the two met, meet um but every every um every single artist is making those kinds of decisions all the time i like to i like i was just in one of the uh, great museums in new york um at the at moma and looking at a picasso and one of the things that you notice when you look at a picasso is that you you just see that the the decision the most important decision was to stop. Mm. Right? And it's just like, it's just a splash of paint uh, that makes a woman's hair. Mm. You can see the brush um, kind of lifting off the canvas and painters for hundreds of years before him would have filled it all in and put some highlights in and but he thought, nope, good, good, let's stop there. And and that is that a, was that an artistic decision, scientific decision? I think it was pretty much an artistic decision. Um, there's something about the moment when you say yes, this is it, is uh, the kind of fullness of your capabilities trained on whatever it is looking at. Um, so emotion, feeling, um, temperament. Mm-hmm. Idea, narrative, all of it melded together into this, into this whole, and you think, yes, this is this is it, this is good, and you move on. So, if there's bit <laughs> of both, I guess is the answer. True that. So, uh, I'll ask you something which is a little philosophical. Uh, if you could pass one of your life learning to the next generation. What would you be? What would that be? Yeah, I, I like I, I like this question. Um, it's I think it's the idea that anger is simply shame's attempt to hide. Fabulous. Mm. That will be something that I'll also take from you because at times I do get angry, so I must. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it took me a long time to learn it. (laughs) It usually takes all of us a long time to learn the most fundamental things that can change life. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The last question, Tom. If one of your books must be reviewed by your dream reviewer, who would you choose and why? I think I would choose, you know, I, you know, part of me wants to go back to these authors that I wrote about a lot uh, back in the day, like Henry James or Edith Wharton, who wrote some great, great literary criticism, um, Willa Cather. But um, uh, I think I, I think I want to say Margaret Atwood. Mm-hmm. I think she's a great combination of completely open-minded she's you know fierce she's intelligent obviously she's perceptive and she has like not a shade of snobbery 
Um, the only thing that worries me is that um, she doesn't suffer fools. And that, uh, that makes me a little nervous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'd still like to see what she said. Tom, thank you so much for participating in Book Lounge. I really, really admired this conversation. And thank you a lot for uh, giving us this time. Uh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. It's great talking to you. And I will see you on the internet. Thank you, audience, for listening to our show, Book Lounge, brought to you by iCafe Podcast. Please do reach out to us with your thoughts and suggestions on hello at iCafePodcasts.com. Subscribe to www.icafepodcasts.com and you can also hear us on other audio apps. Stay tuned with us for Book Lounge. iCafe is brewing.